He's bolder than the strongest boulder. That's awesome, isn't it? You know, the way we learn here in our Greek mindset is to line everybody up in rows and teach systematically, number one, number two, number three, number four, with lists, with formulas. The ancient Hebrew mindset taught differently. They taught with pictures. And so my desire and my prayer for you has been that as we walk through these last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66, that we would not unpack step one, step two, step three, but rather we would catch an image of God that would so capture our hearts and our imaginations that we would be done with this world. And we would place the full weight of our trust and confidence in Christ. So if you have your Bible, open it with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66 is where we'll be spending quite a bit of time over the next several weeks. And these are some of the richest portions of Scripture of the entire Bible. You know, in 1995, astronomers took a telescope and they pointed it as an experiment for 100 days. This telescope was called the Hubble, and they pointed it to a small patch of sky that they thought contained emptiness and nothingness. And yet after peering into that small patch of sky for 100 days, they discovered that in actuality that small patch of sky contained thousands of galaxies. And each of these thousands of galaxies contained hundreds of millions and billions of stars. Well, sometime later in 2004, they repeated that same experiment. They took the same Hubble telescope, shown it, focused it into another patch of empty space, peered into that patch of empty space, and it revealed thousands of galaxies that they didn't know previously existed. And some years later, in 2012, they pointed that same telescope into another empty patch of space to reveal tens of thousands of galaxies. And they concluded that there are an estimated hundreds of billions to trillions of galaxies in the known observable universe, each of these galaxies containing hundreds of millions of stars. And in the same way, as we walk through Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66, this chapter will serve as a telescope to peer into our painful, hurtful, sorrowful experiences and situations and seasons that seem to be empty and devoid of God's blessings. And we will realize that it's teeming in actuality. These seasons are teeming with the glory, the grace and the goodness of God in our lives. And we will see as we walk through these 27 chapters that the only thing that rivals the power of God is the gentleness of God. And the only thing that's equal to His glory is His grace. And the only thing that can compare to His exaltation in the heavens is His humiliation on the cross. And the only thing that can match his loftiness is his nearness. It's a very spectacular portion of Scripture that we'll be in. 
Because the Bible itself has 66 books, and we'll be walking through Isaiah, which has 66 chapters. The Old Testament is comprised of 39 books, and these 39 books point to the judgment of God and where man falls short of measuring up to his holiness. And the first 39 chapters of the 66 chapters of Isaiah deal with God's holiness and how his people have fallen short of his standard. And as the final 27 books of the Bible, the New Testament, point to the cross and God's solution to our failure and reconciling us back into a relationship with him, so the final 27 chapters of Isaiah point to Christ. Christ is the central theme. And we began Isaiah chapter 40. In this series called The God That You're Looking For, and we will see as we walk through Isaiah chapter 40 that the God that the Bible discloses is a God who comforts. It's a God who comforts those who have broken, a God who comforts those who have fallen, a God who comforts those who are weary. It's a God who comforts them and carries them and strengthens them and blesses them. So as we walk through this portion of Scripture together, first of all, we'll see that this God of comforts shouts to the broken, to the weary, to the wounded, to the wayward. He shouts, comfort my people, comfort them. And this is a breath of fresh air from the uh, first 39 chapters in Isaiah that point to the judgment of God's people. About 200 years, 150 years before the time of this particular writing, uh, the ten tribes of Israel were wiped out and absolutely destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Two tribes of Israel remain, Judah and Benjamin. That occupied the southern portion of Palestine, and that nation uh, changed their name to Judah. And where the Assyrian power is declining, the Babylonian power is increasing. And God is raising up the Babylonians to wipe out the southern nation of Judah. And they will be led into exile. And they will be there for 70 years. And the first 39 chapters largely deal with the judgment that came upon Israel and the judgment that will come upon Judah. And then at chapter 40, which represents the New Testament aspect of this uh, book, Old Testament book that could be called the, the Gospel of the Old Testament, We have a change of pace, a breath of fresh air. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Comfort. God is a God of comfort. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we receive comfort in our afflictions and with that comfort that we receive from God we now have something to comfort others with God is a God of comfort as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 through 30 echoing the essence of Isaiah 40 verse 1 come unto me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest but what could possibly comfort a people whose cousins were wiped out And the plans of God seem to be completely uh, vanished from their life. What could possibly comfort a people who would find themselves in exile for 70 years? 
Their children and their grandchildren's future was not uh, bright with promise, but it was promised that they would be in poverty, in slavery, that they would be destroyed. What could possibly comfort such a people? What could possibly comfort us when we get discouraging news from a doctor? What could possibly comfort us when we don't see any way that God can make sense of our life? What could possibly comfort us when we don't know which way to go? What could possibly comfort us when our heart is sick and sorrowful? What could possibly comfort us when the next time we'll see our loved ones is in heaven one day? What could possibly comfort us now? The same comfort that gives God's people comfort in Isaiah chapter 40. And as we walk through Isaiah chapter 40, we are going to see that we have every reason to hope and every reason to have joy because the God of all comfort is with us and for us. And the first thing that God says to his people, he says, speak tenderly to my people and comfort them. And the first reason that God's people always have reason to be comforted, God says, Comfort my people, because the wall of division is destroyed between them and me. Comfort my people, because the wall of hostility has been torn down between them and me. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, if you look at the immediate context, you say, well, okay, I can see how Israel's sin was paid for. They went deep into idolatry. As we've studied in other series, they worshiped the bells and they were performing sexual acts to honor the bells so that he would shed his seed and rain upon their crops to give them fruitful harvests. They were even sacrificing their own children on these altars to appease the God of fertility to give them crops. And they persisted in this rebellion. They persisted in this waywardness. And God, for decades and centuries, tried to bring them to a place of repentance, but they persisted. And so Assyria wiped out Israel. Babylon would soon wipe out Judah And they would be in exile for 70 years. And you look at that and you say, okay, I can understand how they paid for their sins. In fact, they paid a double portion of the sins that they committed. And so there's peace between them and God. But I don't know that I have yet paid for my sins. But this is not what this particular portion of Scripture is saying. This portion of scripture is saying the wall of hostility has been torn down. The wall of division has been destroyed. There is no longer hostility between you and me. There is now peace between us because somebody else has paid a double portion for your sins. And the somebody else who has paid a double portion for your sins is none other than Jesus when he paid for our sins on the cross. And we know that this is referencing Jesus paying for our sins on the cross, thus tearing down the wall of hostility between us and God because of verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make a straight 
place, make us straight in the desert, a highway for our God. And this is referencing John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers, all reference this passage when referring to John the Baptist, who declared that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, is here. And because Jesus paid for your sins and my sins on the cross, that goes so much further than paying for our sins, being in 70 years in captivity or all of our blessings being destroyed. No, Jesus paid a double portion for our sins on the cross so there is no more division or hostility between us and God, but there is now peace between us and God. Which is why when Jesus was on the cross and he cried, it is finished, taste law, the price for your sins has been accomplished and atoned for, At that moment, the hand of God ripped the veil between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place from the top to the bottom, signifying that there is no longer a need for mediators. There is no longer a need for ceremonies. There is no longer a need for religion. All of that has been torn down, and we can now have peace with God and a relationship with Christ. And this is the first reason that no matter what we're going through, we have comfort Because the wall of division has been destroyed because Christ paid for our sins on the cross. I recently went to Lubbock to visit some friends. It's where I was born and raised. When I was driving around Lubbock, I saw the same water tower that used to be my landmark when when my brother and I and our friends would get on our bicycles and ride all around the neighborhood and we'd get turned around and lost. All we'd have to do is turn around and look at this water tower and start pedaling toward the water tower because it was sort of in our backyard and if we could just find the water tower towering above the landscape of Lubbock, and I use that word loosely, the landscape of Lubbock, the flat houses of Lubbock, the water tower towered over the flat houses of Lubbock, and if I would just start pedaling toward it, I would find my way home. And when we're in a place of sorrow and despair, and we found our place, and we found ourselves in a place of waywardness and rebellion, all we have to do is find the water tower. Remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Start pedaling home to that water tower, the cross of Christ, and we'll find ourselves in fellowship with God again, in fellowship with God immediately. Comfort, comfort my people, cries the Lord to his prophet Isaiah, because the wall of division is destroyed. Comfort, comfort my people, cries God to Isaiah. And tell them to live for my praise and my purposes. Tell them to live for my praise and my purposes. And God instructs us to live for his praise and his purposes by first understanding that he is really, really big and that we are really, really small. First of all, God is really, really big. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the Lord in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? 
Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? God is saying, I am really, really big. He measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Think about that. If we were to travel at a speed of 186,000 miles per second, that's the speed of light, we could circle our entire globe seven and a half times in one second. That's fast. Really, really fast. Then if we decided to travel to the sun, which is 92.6 million miles away, at that same speed, 186,000 miles per second, we would reach the sun in eight minutes. That is fast. Really, really fast. And then if we wanted to travel to the next closest star in our Milky Way galaxy... At that same speed, 186,000 miles per second, we would reach that star traveling 186,000 miles per second in four years. That's the next closest star. We would travel for four years at 186,000 miles per second. And there are millions and trillions of stars in our galaxy. If we were to go from one side of our galaxy to the other, we would travel 100,000 years at 186,000 miles per second to reach one side of the Milky Way to the other side of the Milky Way. And there are estimated in the observable universe some 500 billion to 2 trillion galaxies in our universe, each with trillions of stars spread out. And God has the entire universe in the palm of his hand. Does that not tell us that God is really, really big? But not only that, we are really, really Small. In February of 1990, NASA's Voyager spacecraft was speeding across our outer solar system at 40,000 miles per hour. Sounds kind of slow now, doesn't it? Voyager was 3.7 billion miles from Earth and passing Saturn. When it received orders from NASA to turn its cameras back and snap 60 pictures, each picture was composed of 640,000 pixels. It took five and a half hours to send each pixel back to Earth. Each pixel drifted across space throughout March, April, and May. The results stunned NASA. An image of our Earth, 100,000 times further away than we have ever seen it before. The Earth was, as Carl Sagan put it, a pale blue dot suspended against the backdrop of lonely space. A reflection of the sun off of the spacecraft, the, the spacecraft happened to cast a vertical beam of light down the blue dot. Earth appeared to be a meaningless moat of dust 
Think of that, a meaningless mote of dust. One might see only because a ray of light happened to cross it. And every life that has ever been lived has been lived out on that mote of dust. And earth is a mote of dust in our solar system. Our solar system is just a speckle of light on the outer rim of our Milky Way galaxy. And our galaxy is a smeared dot of light in the observable universe. And our universe is a grain of sand in the greater cosmos. Carl Sagan put it well. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. No wonder David the psalmist marveled. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. God is really, really big. And we are really, really small Isaiah 40, 15 through 17 talks about how small we are. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not a sufficient altar for fires because it was known for its trees. Nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and not just nothing, less than nothing. Then Isaiah goes on to contrast how big God is and how small we are in verses 22 through 26. God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. This was written in some 700 B.C. and right here way before 1492 when Christopher Columbus discovered that the world was round. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. Three thousand years before we found out that the universe itself is stretching and expanding... Isaiah writes, he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He is big and we are small. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. We should vote our conscience and sway society with biblical principles when we can, but our hope is in nothing so shallow, primitive, or fleeting is a governmental system. Our hope is in Christ. Verse 24. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. God is big and we are small. Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. How does this comfort us? That God is really big and that we are really small. Continuing this thought on the magnitude of God and how microscopic we are. We see that we find comfort in the 
grandness of God and the minuteness of ourselves because our plans will perish, but the word of God will last forever. In verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? Cry, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord that blows upon them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. This is our comfort. That we place no confidence in something so fleeting, so microscopic, so unfaithful as our modern comforts and conveniences and, govern, and, and government are our own measly righteousness. Our confidence is in the word of God, the promises of God, the glory of God, and the righteousness of God. And God says, comfort, comfort my people. The wall of division is destroyed between them. Comfort my people and tell them to live for my glory, my righteousness, and my promises. Because everything else is fleeting. Everything else is, is as fleeting as the grass on August in a neighborhood that has a water ban. It dries up. It dies but God's word stands forever. How can God comfort his people who are going into exile for 70 years? He says, because don't look at your government, don't look at your comfort, don't look at whatever measly righteousness that you think that you can obtain. Don't look at the, the modern comforts and conveniences. Look at my promises. Hold on to my promises. Because everything else, even the empire that swallowed up Jerusalem, will be swallowed up itself. That will pass away. But my word will last forever. So, we live for his promises. We live for his glory. And we trust in his righteousness. Comfort, comfort my people. The wall of division is destroyed. Comfort, comfort my people. Live for my praises, my promises, trusting in my righteousness. And comfort, comfort my people because my purposes will prevail. Ten tribes were wiped out. Two remaining tribes are on their way into exile. And yet God promised Abraham I will make a great nation of you. And that promise seems to be evaporated. God promised Abraham through your offspring that the world will be blessed. It's a messianic prophecy referring to Christ. But this, this people seems to be wiped out. And God says, comfort, comfort my people, because no matter what it looks like and no matter what it feels like, because you look around and no matter what circumstances and people are screaming, my purposes will prevail. Verse 3, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is filling the promise he gave to Abraham. This is the promise that the Messiah will come. This is referencing John the Baptist who will one day point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the first coming of Christ. And not only that, Christ is coming again. And Isaiah shifts from the first coming to the second coming in verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towers of Judah, 
Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense, his reward, accompanies him. God's purposes will prevail. No matter did it seem that God's people were being annihilated from the face of the earth, God brought forth his Messiah from that people. And no matter that even today the nations rage, Christ will come again, and the lion will lie next to the lamb as he establishes his kingdom, a kingdom of peace on this earth. God's will for your life God's plans and purposes for your life is not like the last glow of a candle's wick that can accidentally be snuffed out. God's plans and purposes for your life is not like a delicate petal on a wilted rose that could easily fall off. No, no. God's purposes and plans for your life is a wildfire consuming everything in its path. It is a boulder pounding down the slopes of history with invincible force. Nothing can thwart the purposes and the plans of God in your life. And God says, comfort my people with this reality. Comfort my people with this reality. I am in control, I am sovereign, and my purposes in your life will prevail. No matter what your situation looks like, no matter what your heart feels like, trust in my plans, my purposes, my glory, the righteousness I've entrusted to you, I've given you. In 1774, there was a man named Cowper who was suicidal. He was about 45 years old. His life took some unexpected turns of disappointment. He despaired even of life. One evening, he set out to kill himself. And so, he called Uber and the chariot showed up. The coach set up, showed up. He gets in the back of this coach and the, uh, the, 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 the horseman begins the journey to take him to where he wanted to go to end his life. A thick fog set in. And the man driving the coach understood that Cowper was despairing, even of life, and was really concerned to take him to his destination. So he used the thick fog as an excuse. And he just began turning down this corner and that corner and just going in intentional circles. And Cowper, in the back of the coach, in the back of the wagon, fell asleep. And then when he woke up, he was in front of his house. And Cowper said, what? How did we wind up here? And the driver said, I got lost in the fog. Sorry, here you go. And he went inside, and Christ comforted his heart that night, and he realized that God's sovereignty intervened in his life, and he penned this hymn, which has bolstered the faith of many saints throughout the generations, of God's sovereignty in our life. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plans his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind frowning circumstance, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, 
but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. There's a story of an older man who had a horse on his farm. And this horse one day escaped off of his property, and he couldn't find it. And his neighbors came over and just wagging their heads, they said, you must have done something wrong. You were so cursed because you lost your horse. And the man said, how do you know it's a curse? It could be a blessing. Only God knows. We'll trust in his sovereign ways. Some weeks later, that horse returned and it found a friend and it brought the friend with it. And that friend was a beautiful stallion. And so the man put the horse and the new stallion in the barn. And his neighbors came by, and they saw the horse, and they saw the stallion, and they said, you're right, we said it was a curse, and it was a blessing. And he says, all I know is that God is sovereign, and God is trustworthy. Well, sometime later, the man's son got on that horse, the the stallion that came back out of nowhere, and he was riding the horse, and the horse was wild, and it bucked him, and the son broke his leg. And his neighbors came by, and they wagged his head, and they said, you're right, we thought you were blessed, but actually it it was a curse. None of our sons have broken legs. Your son has a broken leg. That stallion was a curse. He said, how can you say it's a curse? God is sovereign, and we know that he's good. And some weeks later, their country broke out into war, and the generals came by, and they forcefully recruited all the young men to go off into a, into a brutal and, and violent battle, but they didn't take that man's son because his leg was, leg was broken. And all the neighbors came by and said, you were right, it wasn't a curse, it was a blessing. And the man said, all I know is that God is good, and he is sovereign, and we trust him. When we are in perfect health, God is sovereign. When every bone on our body aches, God is sovereign. When we have financial blessing, God is sovereign. When we have to trust him to make ends meet each month, God is sovereign. When Assyria declined in power, God is sovereign. When Babylon was raised in power, God is sovereign. When Jerusalem thwarted Assyria, God was sovereign. When Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and led all the young rulers into captivity. God was sovereign. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and Jerusalem screamed, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, God was sovereign. And in the darkest day of history, and the most beautiful day of history, when Jesus hung on the cross and they were spitting upon him and ridiculing him, God was sovereign. When you understand all of your circumstances, God is sovereign. When you understand nothing of your circumstances, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And as we said, his sovereign purposes and plans are not a smoldering wick smoldering wick they are a wildfire it's not a delicate rose petal it is a pounding boulder rolling down the slopes of history with invincible force and god says comfort comfort my people because the wall of division is destroyed comfort my people and tell them to live for my praise because i am big and they are small and my words and glory and righteousness is what lasts comfort comfort my people because my purposes will prevail in their life and comfort comfort my people 
because I will carry and comfort every weary and wounded soul who trusts in me. Isaiah 40, 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. What a beautiful picture of this God. The only thing that rivals his loftiness is his nearness. The only thing that rivals his power and glory is his gentleness and attentiveness. And we go on, Isaiah 40, verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Is anybody weary? Is anybody weak? Has anybody been wounded? He wants to increase your power. He wants to increase your strength. Verse 30. Even youths, and this word youths can also be translated, even the most choice among you. If an Olympic team were were going through the universities and the schools, they would pick out the youths. They would pick out the most choice, the most chiseled, the most in shape. The people you look at and you're just like, wow, they're they're like a thoroughbred. They're like a stallion. They're, 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 they're a perfect athlete. Even these choice grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those referencing the weary and the wounded in verse 29. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And this is a promise When you hope in the Lord, when you hope in His righteousness, not your measly righteousness. When you hope in the Lord, when you hope in His promises, not your bewildering circumstances. When you hope in the the Lord, when you hope in His strength, not your power that has grown weary and felled you. When you hope in the Lord, this is a promise. In a matter of time, He will renew your strength. And you will mount up with wings as eagles. And you will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. And everybody will see that it's God's sovereign hand that is sustaining you to the praise of His glory. And they're going to want a relationship with that same God that's sustaining you. How do you hope in the Lord? Another translation says those who wait upon the Lord. Well, what does a waiter do? A waiter waits. If you go to a restaurant, you see that a waiter waits. They get a towel, they put it over their arm, and they wait for you. They serve you. When you hope in the Lord, wait upon God, serve God, trust God, and wait with expectation. The definition of hope is not wishful thinking. I hope it's not raining when we go outside. I hope it is raining when we go outside. That's simply wishful thinking. Hope is defined as expectation. You're expecting it. It's not a reality yet, but you're expecting it. Just like a kid hopes for Christmas morning. They're expecting it. It's not here yet, but they're looking forward to it with expectation. It's on the calendar, and all they have to do is persevere and endure, and they will wake up on Christmas morning. And in the same way, we hope, we expect God will renew our strength. He will make a way. He will move the mountains that block our path. He, we, we will mount up with wings as eagles. He will sustain 
us. He will shine through us. Everybody will see the glory of God upholding us. They will praise God because of the strength that he endows to us. We look forward to it. We expect it. And we will enter into that reality. And it's to God be the glory. Would you stand with me, please? My desire this morning in prayer for you was not to give you three steps, but it was for us all to get a clear picture of who God is so that he would so capture our heart that we would be done with this world, we would be done with sin, and we would even be done with despair, and we would run to God, and we would trust God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? How many of you would say, yeah, I have been growing weary, and I am amongst the wounded? Would you raise your hand? I would just like to pray for you. And Father, you see the hands that represent weary and wounded souls. (laughs) But you are the lofty, the glorious God who holds the breath of the expanding universe in the palm of your hand. Even if we had our own strength, it accounts for nothing. Oh, but God, when you look upon us, when you shine upon us, when you make a way, when you breathe fresh life into us, when you strengthen us, we mount up with wings as eagles and soar. And Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would comfort and carry every weary and wounded soul for the praise of your glory. To the praise of your glory. And if you're a prayer warrior who's prayed for people at the altar, I'd like to ask you to come forward, please, and just stand up across the stage. And if you would like personal prayer for anything this morning, please come forward. Have one of these prayer warriors pray over you. Perhaps you would just like to come present yourself at the altar and pray for God's strength to sustain you. Or perhaps you would just like to worship with your whole heart. But let's respond to the God of glory and grace.